Hello, welcome to the inaugural episode of the North Pole Apple Sector Podcast, which is to say, welcome to a pretend podcast about the BC Apple Sector. I'm your host, Jordan Marr. If you're listening to this, either you have a deep commitment to trolling the depths of your podcast search engine of choice, or you're a British Columbia Apple Sector professional who either just attended a gathering of colleagues in Penticton, or you directly contributed to the episode you're about to hear. Now, in the fantasy of my mind, where drivers always shoulder check the bike lane and nobody saw me do that drool while in line at the grocery store that time, you've just left the gathering to drive home and you were enthusiastic enough about the condensed version of the Apple Sector audio project I shared with you before lunch that you've come here to listen to the full version. That makes me really happy, which goes to show that self-delusion, like most other things, is relatively harmless in moderation. Theoretically, there's no need to frame this episode, since if you've come this far, you already knew what to expect, but I'll frame it anyway for the Hyperborean tree fruit enthusiasts among us. For a recent gathering of Apple sector professionals in Penticton, I was invited to give a talk about the role that podcasting can play in farming extension and community building. And figuring it's usually better to show rather than tell, I sent out a questionnaire to some people in the Apple sector with a plan to gather some of their perspectives to weave together into a short narrative about the state of the sector right now. And that's what you're about to hear. Nothing too fancy. And blessedly for you, very little of it involves me. I'll be asking each question, but otherwise my intention was to let my guests talk with no follow-up questions. I didn't have any grand purpose, but I firmly believe that podcasts are a great medium for bringing people together around conversation. And they're really good at showing us, particularly during times of disunity, that we have a lot more in common than not. That's all. I hope you enjoy these perspectives and I'll talk to you briefly at the end. My name is David Michelle, and I run I run my family's uh, apple and cherry orchard in Oliver, BC. Uh, in addition to that, I also help my dad and uncle manage an apple packing house called Fairview Orchards. Uh, it's Manny Gill, and I'm a farmer in Kelowna. I farm mostly cherries, apples, and wine grapes. Uh, my name is Katie Sardinia, and I'm I guess a co-manager at Kaleidoscope. Fruit Ranch in Summerland, BC. Right. So Hank Markgraf and longtime apple orchardist from East Kelowna. My name is Josh Brown, and I own a nursery called Similkameen Nurseries. We're located in Coston in the South Similkameen. In the span of your own time in the apple sector, when was the sector functioning at its best? Can you describe that period in terms of what was working so well? So the period that I remember that was working the best was in the late 80s and early 90s when we were the leaders or seen as the leaders in North America with high density apples and I feel that we were the best at that time and we were moving forward because we were going to other places in the world seeing what they had done bringing that back here trialing and erring you know growing that fruit and we were just making leaps and bounds and getting further ahead and it was just, it was a great time to be in the industry. Describe the BC apple sector's greatest asset or strength compared to other regions. Uh, I think um, maybe not its greatest, but certainly one of its greatest assets is the uh, sterile insect release program, simply because it's, 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 it's novel to, uh, to the apple industry, I'd say worldwide. And it's really helped us farmers uh, reduce the amount of spraying we have to do. It also monitors the amount of collie moth in our orchards so we can, you know, better assess what our situation is within our own orchards. And, you know, anything, anything that can reduce the amount of time a person spends on a sprayer, you know, it's great for my bottom line and it's also great for the environment. 
So I, I think that's a, I think it's, I think it's a very strong asset, one that we probably haven't taken full advantage of. Uh, we kind of just know of it amongst us apple growers, but I, but I, but I, but I think there's a lot of marketing potential to it that we haven't capitalized on. But I, I think that's definitely one of our strongest assets. I think the other great asset we have is the uh, the research station in Summerland. Um, you know, a lot of a lot of the information that goes into our production guide or that our extension service people teach us. A lot of that comes from the research station, and they also have some really excellent breeding programs there, especially the cherry program. Without that breeding program, there, you know, BC wouldn't have this, wouldn't have the premium cherry uh, industry that it has. So I would say that's uh, uh, another strong asset. I think that the biggest asset in the BC apple sector is the fact that we have so many small and medium-sized farms, which is actually kind of interesting because I've read some works that were put out by the government and essentially they outlined that as a challenge um, to, I guess, like from the policy perspective. But I do think it's actually a good thing that we have so many small and medium-sized farms, um, largely because we are very diverse and diversity is the basis of resilience. The fact that we have like diverse ownership is a good thing as opposed to, you know, you look at the Washington state, you have giant farms that are, you know, owned by investment firms and that sort of thing that's sort of the other extreme end but here we have lots of small and medium-sized farms which i think going into the future is a very very good thing because in years like the heat dome you know everybody does things a little bit differently and some farms fail and some farms don't so we still have some success because we're diversified we also have like a huge pool of ideas and uh like for me i'm I'm a bit of a size chauvinist with, with farms. Like I do ultimately think we need to have uh, farms at a bunch of different scales to, to be resilient. But I, I grew up on a farm where we have basically enough workload for us. We're about 10 acres. So we are able to do almost all the work ourselves with hiring a couple of people who are local and we pay them well. And I think that that, that model used to be really common, especially when my parents were coming into farming where there were farmers at this scale all over the place. And it's a good scale because we're not as subject to like global shocks like the pandemic where labor is an issue. Um, and there's a lot of flexibility. We can turn around things. Um, and also we can help each other because we're kind of not overwhelmed with these um, giant farms that need to be managed in completely different ways. <laughs> so yeah, I, I actually think that that's the strength of our, of our sector. So our greatest asset and strength is that we are a small, tight-knit community. We live in the part of the world where we don't have to use a lot of crop protection sprays. We don't have a lot of scab issues. We don't have a lot of fungus issues. We don't have very many insect issues. We also have this great market called Western Canada that we can sell our fruit into, and they are loyal to us beyond belief. And I think we could just build on that. When you think of a person who contributed greatly to the tree fruit industry, who were they and what did they do? One person that comes to mind is Bill McPhee. He, was, uh, he provided extension services through, uh, through the cooperative and uh, down in the South Okanagan. So I, I'm in the Oliver area. And Bill actually came out to my farm uh, a few times uh, within the last you know, four or five years when I was doing some new plantings and he got me to really help pay attention to my roots and see what was going on beneath the dirt. Uh, kind of helped me out with some problems with some trees that weren't growing properly. 
But like before I had actually met Bill, he's just well known amongst all the farmers in, uh, in my area. And, you know, a lot of the advice I got from my uncles and from other growers who are good growers, it was advice that Bill McPhee had given him. So it's, you know, it's one of those things where he shares something, something special or something um, valuable with one grower and it kind of, you know, branches out to a bunch of different growers. You know, even someone like myself who, who never really knew Bill um, earlier on, just because I'm, just because I'm a young farmer. Specifically of the apple industry, I'm gonna say another group of people that made a huge difference uh, were the Menels. They're the ones that discovered the Ambrosia apple. And really at this point, if it wasn't for the Ambrosia apple, uh, I think the BC apple industry would be much, much smaller than it is today. So that, that, that apple really kind of, you know, really kind of helped us out. So, um, you know, two different, two different aspects of the industry. One is, you know, the value of education and extension. And the other is just the value of, you know, having something that, having an, an apple that people want to buy and are willing to pay a premium price for. What is the greatest internal threat to the apple sector in BC? Um, I believe it's, it's us, the farmers itself, because it's what's basically happening, happening is we're not getting the return we want in the app from our apples. So every year, you know, we're looking, you know, we're pulling out blocks of apples and replanting them either with, you know, grapes or cherries now mostly that people are planting. So that's really what's, what's impacting the industry now is, is, you know, farmers, we're not happy with the return we've been getting. It's been low cost of production. So really it's like, we got to look at other commodities that we can plant that are going to make us a better return. So I think it's, it's mostly internally, it's going to be us as farmers that's, that's, you know, deciding on the future of the industry of which way it goes. That's a great question. I think that uncertainty and environmental constraints and environmental challenges at the moment are probably facing the apple industry in a way that's creating a level of instability in the decision-making for growers. I think what's unique about farming is that there's a financial consideration where, of course, economically, the numbers need to add up. You need to make decisions that uh, play well for anticipated incomes based on the costs that you have and all of the nuts and bolts of a standard business. But adjacent to that, you also have a changing climate. And either one of those can create instability. I believe the greatest threat right now is our lack of wanting to educate ourselves and our internal fighting to try and get better pricing. I think we have to leave that aside for a minute or two. We have to focus on growing good quality fruit. And to be able to do that, we're going to have to go back out into the world and re-educate ourselves on how to do that. Okay, so there's this giant process unfolding. It's a historical process and it's actually happened before in the industry and it's happening again. Um, and the, the process is that, you know, at one point, um, all apples were marketed through a single marketing board, um, through a single packing house. And of course, at that point, and everybody was doing generally pretty well. But at that point, some growers understood that they could do better if they went off on their own. And so they negotiated and um, basically it was broken up. And now we have independent packing houses. And when you have these smaller packing houses, they have less overhead and more kind of flexibility 
in the marketplace, so they are able to have higher returns to their growers. And so people who are in the big packing house see this, and then we get an increase in the number of, of independent packing houses and uh, sort of a fragmentation. And what happens is that these smaller packing houses, um, they've been able to negotiate, um, basically they're getting prices that are good returns for their growers, but the overall effect has been to reduce the prices overall in the sector. Um, it's been sort of a race to the bottom and that's hurting everybody else. So the, the actual problem, I mean, this, this process has happened before. It's sort of uh, a game theory process that is, is known. Um, I think that the actual problem is that these, a lot of the independents, you know, we're at a moment right now where we need to come together and cooperate, but a lot of them don't see that if we don't do that, and if the sector collapses, that their success right now is only temporary. Because if we lose too many apple growers, then we're going to lose the infrastructure on which we all depend. So that's like their island sector lease, um, things like that. I think that there's sort of a small mindedness in this in this this issue where you know these smaller packing houses they're, they're doing well now for their growers, and they think that therefore that's right and that's good. But if the overall effect is lowering prices for everybody, and we're going to have lots of growers dropping out, which we've already seen, um, then the overall effect, it, it's going to be bad. <laughs> and um, there was some other thing that I wanted to say there. Oh, I guess like a deep fear of mine too, is that, you know, there's a demographic crisis in the farm sector in general. That's true in tree fruits. I think my deepest fear is that some people don't, aren't really thinking long-term because they only have five to 10 years left in the sector anyway. And they kind of just want to retire and they've worked really hard and it's been difficult and I understand that they they want to retire um, in success so I do worry that there's not um, not a complete um, across the board long-term thinking yeah the greatest internal threat is just poor quality um, yeah it's it's pretty straightforward uh, you know lately you kind of go into stores and if BC apples don't look very nice, people aren't going to want to buy them. They're not going to look specifically for that BC brand. And uh, if that happens, it just, you know, reduces the demand for your product. And then people are kind of forced to try and lower their prices to create more an incentive for the wholesalers to buy from you. So, and then just the overall industry gets kind of a bad name and it kind of brings down, you know, grower returns overall. And then, and then growers maybe start planting other options like grapes or something like that. So I, yeah, I would say poor quality is the biggest internal threat. What is the greatest external threat to the apple sector in BC? Uh, so I'm going to go with two again. Um, the biggest external threats, uh, one is I would say the success of the wine industry, uh, just because it's doing really well right now. And if you're not doing great as an apple grower, you're going to go out and plant, uh, and plant grapes, which it's, it's a good thing. It's nice to have that, that option, that alternative. You know, my dad and my uncles, they've been farming forever. And in the 80s, when I was, you know, five, uh, they would tell me I was only five back then. But, you know, in the 80s, it was brutal. Uh, it was a really bad time for the apple industry. And um, but people had nothing else to plant. So they just kept, they just kept their trees and then they got jobs off the farm to to support the uh, to support the family. Whereas, you know, now you have that alternative. So 
you know, it's, it's, it's a good thing that it's there, but it's certainly a threat to the apple industry because it means people have something else to plant. The other big external threat I would just say is Washington State. They're, you know, a, a global apple powerhouse. And when they have huge crops, you definitely, you definitely know it because your return for your apples is, is a lot less. So I would just say, you know, the wine industry because it's been successful and in Washington State just because they're huge. So the external threat is actually extremely important to understand. It's a bit unfortunate that the, the internal threat is the thing that is always talked about and is talked about in isolation from the external threat, which is itself a problem. For example, I think that the government doesn't always hear about this external threat that I'm going to tell you about, and therefore they don't really understand the wider problem. And um, the external threat is that the market in Canada and the world has evolved to a point where it's not returning enough to the farmer. So in Canada, we have estimated uh, 80 to 85% of the market is taken up by five major retailers. And in that environment, an industry as small as ours, um, any of the packing houses, they don't have any leverage in price negotiations. So we are price takers. And that's not necessarily, it's not necessary that farmers have to be price takers, but in this marketplace we are because we are small. And so external threat is the shape of the market. And so that's why we need to have some internal cooperation because without cooperation, we can't have any leverage in this marketplace that we have now. Um, another way of framing this is to say that we don't have enough good buyers like buyers that can engage in like a mutualistic relationship with the apple industry. So if you look into field of biology and you look at the evolution of cooperative structures in nature, um, cooperative structures only arise when you have mutualism between both sides. And that situation is not occurring right now between buyers and producers. We need to have buyers that are probably more regionally scaled and accountable and, ex and willing to um, share profits because this is not happening otherwise. If you could snap your fingers and make a significant change to the Apple sector in BC, what would it be? I would make, you know, make, get us uh, 75 cents a pound return per, per pound, right? But obviously that's, you know, that would be amazing. People would be planting apples you know, all over the valley then, um, if we're getting a higher return. I mean, if that's one thing I could do, I would definitely make, I would definitely uh, get farmers a better return. I'd have everybody wake up and realize that if we all went organic, we could create a, a, a region that was um, truly organic and beyond organic. And we could increase biodiversity, we could keep our yields up, we could. Um, um, do a lot of wonderful things. I think that there's a lot of um, old information in the community about what organic is. People believe that if you go organic, your yields are going to drop a whole bunch. I haven't seen that on my farm. Um, they believe that the amount of labor you need to do is excessive, and I also don't think that that's true. I think it's just a different type of management. It is certainly a problem when you're very large scale. Being organic is much harder. But I think that if, if a lot more of us were to go organic, we could really focus on 
making it really viable. And uh, so I, I wish that there was some of that older thinking was gone and people were open to the idea of being organic. Combining passion for production with passion for entrepreneurship. A greater focus on HR systems and on business focus and on properly running not just financial data, by, by evaluating financial data and by evaluating um, business viability and by adequate by doing adequate budgeting and obviously adequate tracking and, and collecting the data that you need to be able to do that analysis and create those budgets and create those businesses, we would with a little bit more confidence be allocating our funds towards the plans that we have and we would be able to pull off some more, we'd be able to pull off some cool stuff as, as businesses. So um, certain issues that are actually created by a lack of funds and by a scarcity state in business, which is what kind of ends up leading to um, to some of the challenge that some of the challenges that you hear that farmers face um, could be prevented with a little bit more financial planning and a little bit more business planning. Um, what I've often said to people in my industry when asked whether or not to do something, you know, for the for the love of farming, I do it, but for the love of good business. I might not be able to, and I'd be interested to see how the industry would change if, if there was a little bit more consideration in that in that scope. When you consider the Apple sector as it is now, is there anything that frustrates you? What frustrates me about the Apple sector is this continual infighting and not realizing that the rest of the world is moving on and getting past us. And again, I just think that's... A, a large threat to to us continuing to move forward, continuing to get new varieties, continuing to grow more high quality fruit per acre. I just I'm I'm very worried about that. <laughs> yeah, one thing that definitely frustrates me is uh, I would say just a lack of transparency. Um, it would it would nice it, it would be nice to have a better idea of um, of what you know, prices are um, across different different packers and farms and even, you know, uh, like I mentioned, Washington State, it would be nice to have a better idea of exactly what they're selling for. Um, that can that can be pretty challenging. And then I, I think just kind of access to information too. It's, it's, it's amazing how many times I'll, I'll go to events and I'll just, you know, by chance end up talking to someone who will tell me something, you know, give me a tip or something that's really valuable and that I'll implement on my farm. And, you know, it was just, it just happened. I just happened to be lucky that I happened to talk to that person. You know, it's, it, it's tough getting information out there because there's so much of it, but yeah, I just think, you know, access, access to information can be a bit challenging sometimes. So yeah, overall that lack of, you know, that lack of transparency or, or, or lack to, uh, I was, or maybe not transparency, but just access to information, whether it be, you know, pricing information in the marketplace or, you know, some kind of horticultural technique that could improve your, your farming practice? Um, yeah, definitely. I mean, obviously the returns, like I mentioned, um, you know, there, there's not, um, you know, the returns that we're getting as growers, as farmers, isn't, isn't I think, comparable to what our competition is getting. And also, if you, you know, when you, you go to any grocery store, any sort of apple you see is, you know, there's nothing less than $2 a pound. Whereas like we're getting, you know, on average, let's say 25 cents a pound for, for Gala or Ambrosia apples. And it's, 
there's no real the thing that frustrates me is like i want to see the cost the total cost of you know after my apple is shipped to the packing house how much is the cost like how much is the packer getting how much is the retailers how much are they making off our apples you know i, I believe the the cost isn't being the the end cost of it isn't being shared equally from you know from retailer down to the farmer um as farmers like it's we can't control what we sell our apples for right so it's you know it's we're relying on the packer to obviously get the best return from us um but is it the retailer that's marking it up a lot and they're the ones making most of the profit so for me as a as a as a farmer it frustrates me that i don't know how much profit each each uh like the packers making or how much the retailers making off off our apples that we grow Describe the best case scenario for what BC's apple sector looks like in 10 years. Okay, yeah. So um, imagine a future where we are, our region comes to be known for how many varieties we grow and how delicious our apples are and how, um, how we farm with organic principles and <laughs> at least sustainable principles. Uh, I, I really, I think that we should not define ourselves negatively in terms of um, other regions, but like, I, I think we should be a special. I think we should be known um, for the, yeah, the diversity of varieties. We have this situation now, there seems to be in the industry sort of a preoccupation with this idea of creating these really capital intensive marketed varieties. It's like, this is our special variety that we grow here. And I think that that's a good strategy to do partly but it's sort of risky and they've tried to do it for years and years. And every time it kind of fails in some new way, <laughs> which farmers end up suffering from, I think we're better off again, investing in diversity. And uh, when I kind of think of a region of the world, I think of, um, I don't know if you've heard of the Republic of Georgia, but it's known to be, it's a wine region but it's a wine region in a different way than this is trying to be a wine region. It's a, uh, it's sort of known for like wines that are unbelievably delicious and people go there because it is delicious and it hardly ever gets exported because um, people just go there. <laughs> and it's, it's really kind of a remarkable thing. All these wines that are made in like old school ways and on small farms. And I think we could do that with fruit here. I think we could be, um, a region that is known for diversity and for taste and those two dimensions, um, along with ideally um, sustainable growing practices and that sort of thing. And uh, yeah, I think that would be like a sort of a proactive dream that we could work towards. Oh uh, yeah. So the best case scenario is where most, most farmers are growing high quality fruit and um, one thing we really need is we need, I would say five, um, I'd say, you know, five different apple varieties that, that, that consumers are willing to pay a premium price for. Um, there's a lot of club varieties, uh, out there now. It, it would be nice if we could have, you know, five of our own clubs. Best case would be is we still have apples in, in planted in the Valley. Um, you know, it's, um, the last two years few years actually like you know the cherries got really damaged by 
the cold and then we have the heat dome and then you know we're whereas we're getting you know we had that cold again this winter this past winter um you know apples do see a little bit of impact but not as much as as the uh, cherries and wine grapes and other soft fruits so apples are like you know the main fruit that was grown here in the in the, in the north um but now you know with weather shifting is it you know, does it still make sense to plant, you know, wine grapes or cherries up in the valley here, or, or you know, or is, is or is this valley meant for the northern valley? Is it meant for more apple growing? Because um, they are a hardier, hardier fruit, a hardier plant. So it's it's um, ten years from now. I, I really hope there's still lots of apples in the ground, and and the industry is doing really well. Describe the worst case scenario for what BC's apple sector looks like in ten years. It basically becomes a hobby industry where you have, you know, maybe a few guys that are seriously growing apples and packing apples. But uh, I mean, like really where it's kind of non-existent, you know, where, where suddenly we can't support things like SIR. Like you have to have a certain amount of apple acreage to be able to support things like SIR or, you know, to justify having things like extension services or, you know, different, di- different programs that, that we need. So you know, if the acreage gets smaller, then it will affect everyone, even those that want to stay in apples. Worst case is, you know, the opposite where, you know, there's, you know, no, you know, there's very little apple planted in the valley. Um, you know, the, the farming industry here, it, it, you know, apples were the original original fruit that was been growing here in the valley, right? And it'd be, it'd be really sad to see if you know in 10 years there we had no apples in the valley here so it's you know farmers keep getting lower and lower returns and there's much better money in a different commodity then yeah i mean it's going to be you know you're going to see more and more apples being pulled out of orchards so the doomsday scenario for the apple industry there's a number of things another one of my deep fears right now is that early season and late season drought is going to be a limiting factor in our region I really think we need to talk more about this and talk with irrigation purveyors about water being available earlier and later in the season, potentially in certain years, when that is safe for the irrigation system. Um, if that doesn't get fixed, then certain crops will not be able to be grown here. Um, so that's one thing is that we just have less choice of what we can grow. Um, yeah, I mean, the doomsday scenario is we don't get our prices up. People are just going to keep taking out apple acreage. And once it gets to a certain point, then there's a critical point at which the infrastructure for our industry fails. SIR is no longer viable. Companies are no longer bringing in um, pesticides and crop protection products that are necessary for us. And we have to um, increase shipping costs and that sort of thing. So that will then drive more people out of the industry because it'll be more expensive and more difficult. Um, and of course, there's the demographic crisis. So yeah, nobody comes into farming. Nobody can afford it. Um, that's and we have very little farming around. The ALR gets eroded. Um, tree dieback continues. And uh, what we have, worst case scenario, is like yeah, more consolidation, bigger farms, more homogenous, more environmental and social costs that are borne by society. What single change would have the greatest potential to improve your fortunes in the apple sector? This is actually the easiest question on your list. Um, it's actually, I think it's pretty simple. Um, as an organic grower, I look in the stores and I see that my apples are selling for maybe $3 a pound 
Whereas as a grower, I'm getting, you know, maybe 35 cents a pound seems to be about an average. So roughly 10% of the value of what I produce is coming back to me. And that's because of the shape of the market. So the, the single thing that would change my fortunes is more of the value of what I produce making it back to me. And with more money, I have more ability to invest in my farm. Um, personally, I've had to take on a second job this year because we don't have any money. We're not making enough to invest in the farm. And it was a choice between debt or a second job. I chose a second job. Um, obviously, if I didn't have to do that, I'd have more time for my farm. I'd have more time for research. I'd have more time for um, carrying out research projects, going to meetings, um, learning more, it, just in general investment of time. Um, I think that just making a bit more of a of a return is it would fix so many problems. I think also it would help bring solidarity among us. Like we can't, people just like literally don't have time to go to meetings or, or are, are just like struggling with how hard farming is. And so they're not going to meetings. And I think if we were all doing better, we would, it would be a positive feedback loop. How can we build trust among growers and other participants in the apple sector? Speak to people, build relationships, plug yourself into a, real economy and a real community that you're part of have a real understanding that everybody's success is necessary for a healthy industry and not just the success of our own individual farms. We do have to plug ourselves in informatically and also um, communicatively to be able to pull that off. Um, In many ways, trust is built by healthy transparency and also healthy business negotiations. And I think this does go back to this idea of we as farmers are producing the healthiest crop we can and building the healthiest systems that we can. Um, But we as businesses are also trying to build the healthiest market that we can. And it is possible to do business with other people doing a similar thing. It is possible. It is possible to, have dealings. And as a matter of fact, it should be encouraged to do so, to have dealings where both people win. Those are the healthiest negotiations that can be reached. And with a little bit more of that, suppliers and producers and fellow producers and the market at large and healthy relationships with um, with supportive government agencies, extension agencies, you could build more and more trust in the industry. Where do you like to get information to improve your business? How do you sift through the overwhelming amount of info to find what's valuable? Yeah, there is a lot of information out there and it is difficult to sort of figure out what to do. But I I think, you know, I, I still read The Good Fruit Grower. There's a lot of good information in that. I'm a member of the International Fruit Tree Association. There's a lot of great uh, information there. I try and attend those meetings as as often as I can. And then I just go down to Washington state. There's lots of information there, go to their Hort forum. And they're so willing to share um, that it just, it is pretty easy to get that information. You can get overwhelmed, but I think, you know, we have to, that's part of our job as a grower is to stay in tune and in time with what's going on. (laughs) Um, Well, that's a work in progress. Um, you know, sources of where, where I get my information from, uh, you know, talking to people, uh, talking to horticulturalists, talking to agronomists, uh, just talking to good farmers, 
uh, people that I know, you know, do a good job. Uh, certainly my uncles and my parents, because they were good farmers. So, you know, I kind of have an inside advantage there. Um, and I'll try and find things like podcasts if I can. I know some of the universities in the States, they're putting out some podcasts that uh, have some useful information. And then even things like, um, you know, uh, the Good Fruit Grower magazine is, is huge. I find there's, you know, there's always, there's always really valuable stuff in there um, that I can use on my farm. Or, you know, it's introducing me to kind of what's happening in other apple regions in the world. So you can kind of see where the direction of the industry is going to go. Farming is hard. Why do you stick with it? What do you think about in the hard times? Sometimes I wonder if the liability we have all adopted and have accepted as part of doing this particular business is acceptable. The liability is quite high. The liability is attached with, with being subject to the beautiful and sometimes not so wonderful forces of, of mother nature that, that can throw down on our farms really does create an uncertainty that would be lessened if we had widgets on a shelf in a warehouse. That liability has to be balanced by lifestyle, good profits, and I'm gonna I'm gonna add to that and 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 include a contingency plan. Um, we build in a 10% contingency to all of our budgets. Um, I know that agri stability is there, and we have agri stability. I know that pricing can 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 buffer good business, and you have to set good pricing, and you have to manage expenses. We do that, but in addition to all that, we also add a 10% contingency to all of our financial projections, which means that everything is modeled based on a 10% loss per year, and usually we'll only lose 2% or 1%, and that 10% sits there to help create financially a certain real buffer built into the business model itself to account for that real, really uncertain liability that that lies there always in the background with the environment. <laughs> well, in the hard times, I think about I think about my friends that have nice secure jobs with good pensions, and I wonder, you know, maybe I should have done that after all, um, gone down that gone down that path. Uh, the reason why I do it, uh, well, I think part of it is just uh, like this is what my family's done forever. Uh, my grandparents came immigrated from Portugal with my dad and uncles in '65, and the only work they could get was working in orchards and. Uh, they eventually bought their own and, you know, they, then they were able to help my uncles and my dad buy theirs. So, so, you know, there's a little bit of family pride and um, it's kind of crazy saying this because I'm a super, I'm like, I'm a pretty risk adverse person, but there's a lot of, like you ask any farmer and nurse and they're big gamblers and, you know, gambling is kind of addictive. Like you'll have like four bad years in a row and then you'll just kind of start wondering if it's worth it, if you should continue on. And then you hit that one year where everything just lines up really well. You make good money, things go smoothly. And it's, it's just really rewarding when that happens. And it just keeps you, it just keeps you going. Yeah, it's definitely a hard, stressful, stressful job, but you know, I love it. It's my passion. I wouldn't, I would never be doing anything else. Um, someone's got to do it. It's, uh, it's not for everyone. Um, but you know, I feel like the farmers we do our we do what we do is because we love we love we love what we do. It's it's rewarding the years that you know you can you know it's it can be good income, um, but you know the last few years have 
it's been really, really, um, you know, I've kicked our ass pretty much. Um, but um, it's a good, it's a good career. You know, the lifestyle is good. Really, you just gotta have a passion for farming. It is depressing sometimes, but someone's gotta do it. Farming is hard. I enjoy the hard work. I enjoy working outside, and I enjoy being one with nature. And I know that sounds kind of goofy, but I, I do enjoy doing that. I also enjoy the fact that I've been doing this my entire life. And although we prune and thin and pick kind of at the same time every year, there has been no two years that have been the same. And so that challenge of having something a little different every year is just so enjoyable. I do love farming. Um, it is hard, especially the last couple of years have been very hard. Um, but I love being covered in bugs when I'm out working. I love manual labor. I love being in my trees. Um, I love thinning when I'm like, especially thinning actually, because that's when all the harvest men are out and the spiders, there's tons of spiders and they're just all over the place and I can see them live. It's just like a, it's a beautiful, wonderful life and it's worth, worth it for that. Um, when I, when it's hard, I, uh, I don't know what kind of, <laughs> don't know how I should feel about this, but I, I have read a lot of Russian prison literature in my life. Um, it's really hard times. Reading about other people's suffering has made me, you know, understand that I can make it through anything as well. So I'm a big fan of Russian prison literature. So I, I encourage other farmers to give it a try. <laughs> Hi again. That's all for now. Oh, and special thanks to Molly Thurston. She was very helpful in helping me find the participants in this project. And while I'm at it, thank you to Josh, to Manny, to Katie, to David, and to Hank for your contributions. Very clearly, I couldn't have done this without you. I hope you enjoyed it. For the North Pole Apple Sector Podcast, I'm Jordan Marr.